0: After a brief hiatus, I am thrilled to be back with you all for the fifth rendition of Harry's Take. Today, I have the privilege of having Scott Rogowski on with me to discuss the phenomenon of HQ trivia. Scott is best known for being the host with the Hall of French Toast on HQ trivia, but he has also done a number of other impressive things throughout his comedy career. After his incredible tenure with HQ, he got into a little baseball broadcasting and hosted a nightly talk show during the COVID-19 pandemic. Recently, a fascinating HQ documentary called Glitch, The Rise and Fall of HQ Trivia, aired on CNN. You should all check it out. It is very well done. Scott now owns and operates a vintage clothing store in Los Angeles. Scott, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Harry, it's been a minute since I was at your bar mitzvah. How many years ago was that?
0: Uh, it was my brother's, oh, I think your brother. it was, uh, I have the picture. I think it was
1: 2018, probably
0: Yeah, 2018 well, five years.
1: Wow. Look at you. You're a podcaster now. I'm proud of you, pal. Thanks for that lovely intro.
0: Oh, uh, anytime. Well, thanks for coming on. So first tell me, Scott, how did you get the HQ gig in the first place? I know it was a startup initially yeah. and it didn't have a huge falling. So how did that come about for you?
1: You know, it was just a, one of several random auditions I get, uh, or used to get living in New York. I don't really do them anymore, but for a while there, I would be on certain call sheets for commercials or TV shows. I was shooting in New York, like Broad city. And, uh, there was a show called search party. And I remember I auditioned for a Delta commercial. I think I was going to be opposite Noah Syndergaard in that one had I gotten the role. So that was, that was exciting. But The short story is I didn't book any of those gigs. I didn't book a single thing I auditioned for while living in New York except HQ, which was I told myself it was going to be the last one because I was ready to move to L.A. I had already moved out of my apartment in Brooklyn. I was living back home in my parents' house, saving some money because I didn't have a lot of it at that point. And I was planning to move to Los Angeles to kind of rebirth my career out there on the West Coast when I got a call from someone I used to work with at The Onion who said, hey, I'm casting for this game show on a phone they didn't even know what it was called it wasn't called hq it was a brand new thing they were trying they said why don't you come and i think you'd be good for it and lo and behold i think out of 20 or 25 people who auditioned they hired me and the rest yeah of the day it's a miracle is quiztery
0: right? yeah it is you you love the wordplay and how do you you're a big mets fan right yes so the syndicard commercial would have been cool
1: that would have been cool uh you know look, I always say things happen for a reason. Maybe I wasn't meant to be, you know, on that commercial. Maybe if I appeared in that commercial, Syndergaard would have been more confident. Maybe would have pitched better and, or maybe it would have, maybe would have been worse. Maybe would have been scared. Like, Oh geez, this guy, I can't act off that. Maybe, you know, anyway, he never won a world series. So it's all the mood.
0: <laughs> so I know uh, as the game got more and more popular. How did you react to the huge following that came about it uh, in 2018, in early 2018?
1: Yeah, it took me a bit, little bit by surprise, to be honest. You know, I, I never thought it would take off the way it did, and I, I wasn't really prepared for the avalanche of outreach that I started to get because it was a very rapid uh, situation. I mean, it, it, it wasn't really a slow burn like some people have where – they do one show and then they do another show. Maybe they book a movie and this. And then all of a sudden, after all this time, they start building a fan base slowly. For me, it was like overnight, I went from – I didn't even have an Instagram account when I started HQ. I truly did not not even have one myself. Um, but I can tell you, within six months, I had like 80,000 followers. And wow. it was all because of HQ. So uh, it took on a life of its own. I was, it was hard to walk outside of the city in, in downtown New York just, just to get lunch because I would get stopped on the street so many times for photos. Um, I don't know, man. It it seemed a little surreal looking back on it all. But uh, I knew it wasn't going to last forever, which is why I prepared myself for the inevitable when uh, now I'm shouting on on the streets, hey, do you remember me? I was on HQ. I have signs that said HQ guy, and nobody cares. But that's life.
0: Yeah, I remember every night we used to get on at 9 o'clock. It was 9 o'clock. And that was HQ time around, around the country. That's right. And I think it speaks for a lot of the country. And when you came to my brother's bar mitzvah, everyone was like, Oh, that's H everyone knew who you were. It was madness.
1: Exactly. It was mad. So, you know, you have to, another lesson is to really um, take advantage of the moment and and be present in the moment because, you know, I'm living proof that, that everything is fleeting and ephemeral and, uh, I was enjoying it, though. I mean, not to say that I didn't. I I very much soaked it all in at the time. And so I have these great memories that'll carry me the rest of my life. And if I ever have children, I'll try to explain to them. They probably won't understand it. It's hard to explain to people who weren't there.
0: Uh, Fast forward to probably 2022, 2023, and with the documentary, what have you enjoyed most about making the HQ documentary? And how did it compare to hosting the other things that you've done, like the COVID shows, the baseball and most importantly, HQ. What was this field? Well,
1: I'm glad, glad you different. asked because, you know, I didn't make the documentary. I want to make that absolutely clear for people uh, listening to this or watching this. It, it's it, oh, yeah. there there was something, you know, there's some videos going around when the when the movie premiered on CNN. You know, oh, Scott's shopping this around Hollywood. Uh, you know, Scott, you know, was making money. off. I, I didn't make a dollar off this thing. I was not a producer. I was not a director. I was not an editor. I had no say in how it came out. They just interviewed me. They interviewed like 20 people for this thing, and I was one of one of those people. So um, my process make, making it was just sitting in a chair answering questions. And frankly, if you want to know the truth, I didn't have a great time doing that part because they were shooting it in an Airbnb in Brooklyn with like the creakiest floors. So every time you moved in your chair, they had to stop the audio. There were airplanes going overhead. that were like right next to JFK apparently. So every five minutes we had to hold for the airplane noise. And it made for a very difficult recording session, if I'm being quite honest, to the point where I, I was getting a little frustrated and annoyed by the whole process. So um, that's my take on, on making the documentary. But now that I've seen it, I'm glad I participated. I think they did a pretty good job of telling the story. And you know, like I said, I had no say over how it came out or how it would look. But um, seeing it for the first time, um, it was, again, kind of a surreal experience because they're, they're rehashing all these moments from my life. There were photos I'd never seen before. They had footage. I don't know where they got this stuff. They asked me, they said, do you have any photos behind the scenes? Do you have any videos? And I said, honestly, I didn't really take a whole lot of that stuff. I was trying to be in the moment at the time. And I didn't do a lot of documenting and archiving of it, but they somehow dug up photo shoots. I swear. I didn't know these photos were taken of me. There's photos of me in my kitchen, in my apartment. I said, "Who was someone peeping through the window to take these photos? I have no recollection of these photo shoots. Uh, so that was, that was a little strange, but no, I think they did a good job. You know, of course they can't tell the whole story. It was only an hour and a half, uh, or maybe it was only an hour. Um,
0: I think it's an
1: hour and a half. Maybe maybe it was an hour and a half, yeah. I guess with two with two two hour block with some commercials, but it could have been three hours long if they really wanted to get into the nitty-gritty of what was going oh, on. Oh yeah.
0: There. The nitty-gritty. So if you want to hear um, some
1: if you want to hear some other stuff, I'll tell I'll tell you, I'll tease you with something that was not included in the documentary that uh, no one probably knows outside oh, of this. God, but, a
0: Special uh special, Harry's Take moment.
1: Special alert here for Harry's Take fans only. <laughs> That's just to illustrate, you know, the, the the central tension of the documentary, I guess, was Russ and Colin, the two co-founders of the company, sort of fighting with each other, not agreeing on the product and, and ultimately leading to the collapse of, of HQ because nothing was getting done. There's no leadership, totally paralyzed from the top. Um, and a part of that is just the fact that Russ, one of the co-founders who was really kind of my boss, being so focused on the wrong things to the point where, And I'm still trying to, I'm still struggle to explain his behavior. I truly don't understand it. I would love to sit down with him one day and just ask him, what were you thinking? Who was giving you advice? Was this something coming from you or for, were you being told to act this way? Because here's just a great example of the, in my mind, in, in pure insanity of his behavior and irrationality and his mind being in the wrong place. And not only that, just, just, just almost like working against him and working against our relationship because we did not have a great relationship and that wasn't because of of me i'll be i i wanted to have a great relationship i wanted to get along with my boss you know i didn't know this guy when i when i moved there was no history we could we had a fresh fresh start we could have been best friends but um there was an example here's here's the crazy story so i went on regis and no it wasn't regis at the time because regis left the show it was kelly and ryan live with kelly and ryan kelly rip and ryan Seacrest have their morning show or they, mm-hmm. I guess they used to. Ryan Seacrest has since left the show, but this was live with Kelly and Ryan. I went on the show. I went on a lot of TV shows promoting HQ at the time. I did the Today Show, Good Morning America, oh, yeah, you know, The Voice, all sorts of things. And the whole point was just to promote HQ, get the word out in front of a national audience of television viewers. So I did one of these shows in the morning. And most of the time I do one of these appearances, they would ask me to ask some trivia questions. It was just kind of like, You know, it's a trivia show. It's a great way to get the hosts of the shows involved that I'm I'm on. So Mm. I did this on New Year's Eve shows. I did this like a bunch of times. And for whatever reason, I went on Kelly and Ryan. They did the same thing. I asked some questions to Kelly and Ryan on the show. After the show, I got an email from Russ saying, you violated your contract, your breach of your contract, which says you can't host trivia shows on other platforms elsewhere. It's like, are you serious? Wow. First of all, I'm not hosting another show. I'm doing a segment on Kelly and Ryan promoting HQ, promoting your app. So it was like, is this guy for real? Like, you're going to tell me I'm in breach of contract? Of course, you know, I wasn't, and we got it all cleared up. I mean, I, I passed it along to my lawyer. I guess they figured it was like, why are you even making this an issue? How is this? How are you focused on this? How about you focus on running the app and building new products? Like, but also it was just so out of left field. So you know, again, I'm just stating the facts here. You can editorialize and come up with your own opinion, but that seemed pretty irrational and and just, you know, I, it's unexplainable. I truly can't explain that type of behavior. And, and, and all it did was just damage our relationship, which is a shame. So um, that was not included in the documentary. That would have been another stark illustration of, of just how crazy things were.
0: Yeah, uh, for me at least, I was just an avid player of the game show. I didn't know there was so much so much so many layers of complexity behind the scenes in the Upper Man.
1: Very few people did, which is why again I'm glad the documentary is out there so people can get some sense of of the madness behind the scenes.
0: Did you feel more pressure going back to HQ uh more nerves on air as thousands and thousands of people started playing or was it just your yeah, what was nice about at that point.
1: being at HQ from the beginning where there was really no one playing, no one paying attention to it, you know, have, starting with the eight people in the office were the, were, the, were the audience, to then getting to millions of people. I mean, even though it did happen fairly quickly, there was still a a steady build. It didn't go from zero to two million overnight, right? Zero to 50 to 100, 150 to 200. It, built, it kind of multiplied mm-hmm. over time exponentially, but it was like, you know, boiling a frog, right? Where you... The frog doesn't realize uh, it's in hot water because it starts slow and then it gets super, super hot. Um, that's maybe not the best analogy, but, but suffice to say is that I didn't really feel that hot boiling water being dropped into it the way some of my co-hosts did. Because I will say this, I had a lot of celebrity co-hosts, Gordon Ramsay, Mark Cuban, Kevin Hart, Danny DeVito, you know, Robert De Niro, John Mayer, and some of these people when they would come in to do the show, when I had a million players live, they were actually very nervous. (laughs) Because sure, they do TV, they appear, but they're very rarely doing something live. First of all, most things are recorded. And to be live, there's no cuts, no edits, no censorship, like they're coming into it as if it's boiling water, right? And I was used to it. So that's that that was the difference there when I yeah, I remember like Gordon Ramsey being very nervous and he's doing TV all the time Mark Cuban being like, This is live. This is really live, you know? Um The Rock, you know. So uh it, it it's wow. fun it was funny to kind of see how they reacted to it. Um, and they all couldn't believe how like, God, you're so natural up there, you make it look so easy. It's like, well, you know, it's kind of my you're in my home. This is my audience, my show. And yeah, I've if I were dropping in colds with a million, two million people, I probably would have been way more nervous. But the way it worked out for me, it was pretty comfortable the whole time.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. you you could be more calm and collected yeah. than those people that do. No, it but them. no, I get what you're saying. It's, well, it's, it's so they have way
1: more it. experience doing doing that kind of thing. But but this was a very new experience for them because it was a new it was a new thing yeah. for everybody.
0: Yeah. Well, on a serious note, you were clearly proud of your Judaism, which is great. But between uh, wearing the sport coat with the Jewish stars, or the Jewish uh, references and Yiddish words you commonly used, what gave you the courage to be so bold to advertise your Judaism when so many people tend to um, conceal it for fear of anti-Semitism, which is so prevalent?
1: Into yeah, the, you know, that's, uh, that's a good States. question, too. I... I it's just being Jewish is kind of who I am and it's kind of a big part of who I am and my, my identity. It's hard to, you know, you know, it's, it's written on my face, frankly, first of all, Um, you know, my name maybe gives it away uh, my demeanor. I mean, it's just, when I think about myself, you know, not that I'm the most religious person, but it is a big part of my identity and I do feel proud to be Jewish. Although, you know, that's a, that's a funny word too, because I think everybody, is proud of who they are, where they come from. So, you know, I I don't want that to, I don't, I I don't put myself above anyone else saying I'm so proud and Jew, you know, it's not like that at all. It's just, I'm proud of, I'm proud to be a human being, to be a part of this tapestry of life with so many different types of people. And I just happened to be born, I didn't choose this. I was born into this Jewish family with this Jewish tradition and these Jewish genes going back to the motherland, the old country. And it's just so baked into me. If I was Italian or Catholic, I'd, I'd be proud to be that too. So whatever it is, it's just who I am and part of my makeup. And I didn't really give a second thought in terms of expressing those things. It's just you know when you're live, when you're doing that type of show, your synapses are firing so fast. You're really kind of bringing your your soul to this thing, and 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 you don't have time to really think or react. It's just I'm expressing who I am and being who I am, and again, being Jewish is part of part of that. So um you know were there anti semitism i mean i didn't think about that i did get some some nasty tweets and some you know uh, uh not safe for work images uh with some holocaust references but it was very minimal frankly i was surprised you know this is all on twitter which is a total cesspool i was actually surprised at how little uh anti-semitism i received <laughs> uh you know considering how how forward facing i was with it so um Yeah, it's just, uh, again, it's just, you know, I I just wanted to express myself. And in doing that, a lot of Jewish groups and organizations reached out and a lot of people were were, were kind of amazed that I was doing that. But to me, it was um, it was, again, just just part of the job and part of doing what I do and saying Shabbat Shalom. And, you know, maybe and I don't think this deep about it, too, but when you do speak about it publicly, you kind of normalize it. You, You could kind of just maybe educate some people on Jewish holidays what Shabbat Shalom means, challah yeah. French toast. What is that? So many, so many people mispronounce challah French toast. If you've noticed challah, you hear challah a lot from the goys, but uh, even a simple thing like that, just letting the world know it's pronounced challah. You got to get to the back of challah French toast. If that's the one thing I got right for people, then uh, I did my job.
0: <laughs> yeah. I was about to say, I think it's good that you spread the messages and part of the culture of being Jewish to people that didn't have as much exposure. And I know a lot of people that I that are not Jewish that I associate with started using the sayings and it was just great that we could all bond over it. And I think it also enhanced the show because so many people loved it. And it was part of your charisma, which I think is just great for activist a- Jewish activism um, as a whole. But that was yeah. uh, the, the yeah. Jewish jokes always got me. I did it for you on the air, so I appreciate them to get this big break of sorts that HQ was.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's advice that I've received, and it's advice, advice I'll just keep passing along because it, it almost doesn't seem like advice. It, it just seems like you know it's it's just kind of like what you have to do, frankly. I mean, it's just, uh, there's no way around it. Whether it's you starting this podcast, you just started in February, whether it's someone who's trying to do a stand-up career and doing their first open mic, becoming an artist, doing their first paintings and drawings. For 99% of people, there are very few exceptions, but 99% of people, if you're going to make it in the creative field, expressing yourself, being an artist, again, hosting a podcast, whatever it is, You just got to do it and keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. Even when you feel like nobody's watching, nobody's listening, nobody cares. That's, those are really hard times when you're starting something because you are starting from scratch, you know, especially like I had no connections in the business. I didn't come from, I wasn't a Nepo baby uh, in showbiz. You know, some people have those connections. And that could give them a leg up. Um, I certainly had my privileges, class privileges, white privilege, male privilege, you know, all those things. But starting from being, who the hell is Scott Rogowski? Well, who is this guy? Why, you know, doing stand-up, doing a talk show. Why should I care about what he's doing? Why should I listen to what he's doing? Well, if I didn't do that, starting in 2005, okay, my first stand-up show leading to, you know, writing things and more performances and hosting my own talk show from 2008 to 2019 essentially and just doing all the things that I could possibly do to stay afloat, you know, taking odd jobs when I had to, but you know, there were, there were times when I turned down some really good jobs in the non-comedy world. I could have been a co-founder in a company called Bird Dogs which went on Shark Tank and is worth Hundreds of million. I mean, I could have been a millionaire multiple times. I had a job with Bonobos. I had an offer from Bonobos, which was this pants company, which, which you know I could have been selling pants and again been like the twelfth employee. with but You a lot are of selling
0: pants now, Scott. Now
1: I'm selling pants. But this was like 2008 when I was you know still like I was new, I was fresh, and I wanted to I wanted to keep my eye on the prize. I wanted to make a career in comedy or entertainment or something. I didn't even know how or why, but I just knew that I wanted to do that. And, and and selling pants just didn't excite me as much but again I could have been way more comfortable probably you know made a lot more money doing doing those things but I kept at the stand-up thing I kept at the entertainment and people think I was an overnight success but HQ happened in 2017 for me like I said 2005 was my start so that's 12 years of frankly struggling through a lot of that slowly building up, Earning a fan here, earning a fan there, making the videos, the subway videos on YouTube, going viral there, you know, having a few successes along the way. But again, if I had stopped at any point, I wouldn't have gotten HQ. I wouldn't have been doing your podcast now. Nobody would know who I am. So it's just the kind of thing where you gotta keep doing. It. If you want to be the next Mark Marin, if you want to be the next great interviewer, first of all, you gotta get better with practice, you could get better as an interviewer and prepare and all that stuff with just repetition, practice. Just like if you're a bodybuilder, you gotta hit the gym. You're not gonna become you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger overnight. It's going to take 10 years of building your body, just like you got to put 10 years in building your body of work. So it's, it's, it's not something people like to hear because it's like, Oh, that's boring. That doesn't, there's no quick fix. It's just, you got to do it and keep doing it. And you're going to struggle and you're going to want to give up. And I believe me plenty of times I said, this is terrible. This is stupid. What am I doing? I'm going to quit. I can't stand it. I'm just, you know, banging my head against the wall. I'm putting on shows and 10 people are coming out to it. And I feel like I'm not I'm treading water, but something within me just kept me going down this path and kept me putting on another show, putting on another show, trying another video, doing this, and it just it just leads to today. Where, if you want to wrap this up by asking what I'm up to today, yes, I have my clothing store Quiz Daddies, which you can find in QuizDaddies.com. Although the website is really out of date, uh, come see me in Los Angeles if you're in town. 2525 Main Street, Santa Monica. I'll give you a nice little Harry's 20% off discount. Oh, wow. Thank but uh, I also have some things cooking in the in the entertainment world. Again, I'm going to be back on your phones hopefully very soon. I'm not sure if I can fully announce it yet, but I will say stay tuned to the Scott Rogowski space. Wow! Stay tuned to my Instagram. Follow me on there, and uh, I'll be letting you know pretty soon about what I'm wow. doing. But there are a couple opportunities that have come up that I hope could bring bring us back to that HQ hysteria of mass interactive live uh, shows.
0: Thank you so much, Scott, for your time. And uh, as always, thank you all for tuning in to Harry's Take. What's your take?